Kiska. You're listening to 1208 Bit. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of 1208-Bit, a new section on our podcast that focuses on the new church we're starting up uh, on August 26th. So on August 24th, we'll be at Mega XP, which is Jackson's Comic Con, uh, letting people know about uh, the upcoming Monday where we'll be launching a, a new church that aims at uh, reaching those in the nerd culture. Um, cause nerd is very much a culture. I'm very much a part of it. Uh, we tend to have different kinds of questions, uh, think a lot and want to dive into things, uh, on a, a different kind of levels than, um, than others might be interested in. So with that being said, I thought, uh, it might be good to have a extra section to the 1208 podcast that, uh, Occasionally gets in the conversations that uh, those of us who would say we're nerds would be interested in. And today's topic is God's Zillas, which is uh, um, almost the title of a book I wrote. Uh, earlier this year, I put out a book called Kaiju of Biblical Proportions, and I was debating between that and the title Godzillas, God's Zillas, because throughout the Bible, you find monsters of like ginormous size. And to me, it was weird. I was like, okay, so are these things real? And if they're real, are they like actual animals? Like, are they seeing dinosaurs in the Bible or are they, they some kind of animal that went extinct? That wasn't necessarily a dinosaur or is it mythical? You know, are these myths? And if they're myths, then do they matter to the Bible story? And if they're not myths, then, you know, maybe they're kind of like an in-between, like maybe they're supernatural creatures, because the Bible's full of supernatural things. I've written plenty on that over the years and taught on that over the years and do so in the podcast all the time. So that was what I wanted to discern. I knew nothing really about the uh, creatures in the Bible, uh, namely three big ones um, that pop up. And I thought, you know what, I just want to sit down. I enjoy uh, nerd stuff and, uh, you know, I, I like to make kind of like a book that felt like the kaiju, which is like Japanese for giant big monster. Um, I'd like to look at the kaiju in the Bible and then just kind of put together an artsy book, almost like a, it ended up almost being kind of like an academic paper. There's a lot of footnotes and it's a little dense even for me at times because what I had to study to really figure things out uh, was a lot of different scholars trying to process what they were looking at, which took them into a lot of other cultures at the time. And soon I'm reading uh, not just, uh, you know, um, resources on the Hebrew culture, but now on Ugaritic and all these other things. And, and so let's talk about it today. Let's uh, dive in. These Zillas, these God's Zillas, these kaiju in the Bible, these giant monsters, what are they? And that is what we're going to look into right now.
All right, so uh, the first monster we're going to look at today is called Leviathan in the Bible. And uh, he's not mentioned a lot. None of these monsters are mentioned, like, a lot. But they do show up from, from here and there. Uh, and Leviathan is especially found uh, in most detail in the book of Job, which we'll uh, get to in a minute. But before we get there, um, let's talk about the world in the beginning, because chaos actually figures into these monsters quite a bit. So when you open up your Bibles, uh, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but it doesn't start with God creating the water. It starts with God bringing life out of the water. Land comes out of the water. Trees come out of the land. Animals come out of the, the land and, and all things like this. And, and the water is filled with uh, uh, creatures, right? So early on in the Bible, um, while we know that God made everything and God did make water, um, the story as to God making our planet starts with God hovering over water that is already there. It doesn't show him making that. And this actually is probably an important theological point in Hebrew thinking, because um, as you look through the concept of what water is to the Hebrew mind, it's it's pure chaos out there. Um, it's even to some extent, it's where like the demons dwell, where the monsters dwell. It's unpredictable. You don't know what might happen out in the water. And if you start trying to think from an ancient culture, right? Uh, so like we know the world is a sphere, it's a planet, but in ancient culture thought uh, that, uh, well, more or less, let me see if I can explain this. Snow globe, think snow globe. Okay. So all there is is water. Then God brings land out of the water and then he puts a firmament above the water. This is ancient thinking, okay? So the firmament would be like a snow globe. The firmament was uh, water in the sky, just as they believe that there was, well, believe, just as they knew there was water all around them in every direction. Eventually, land runs out. So they knew, uh, so they thought <laughs> that there was this uh, kind of like, um, snow globe ceiling of water that went over the whole planet, you know? Uh, so up in, up in the sky, there's this another layer of water. Rain comes down from the sky, things like this. So this is kind of their like ancient flatland concept of how the world works. So eventually you run out of land and then there's just water. And since water was there in the beginning and the world was just this giant swirling ball of chaos, Land was God's order amidst the chaos. And this becomes a, a hugely important theme all throughout the Bible. And I especially came in contact with it when I was doing a lot of study in Paul's writing in the New Testament. Because much later, Paul gets into like details about order, order, order. There needs to be order. We need to pursue order. It needs to be God's order, the way that God set up the world. Order is what we are longing for. And I'm like, what? Why is your focus always on order? And, and once you start looking all throughout the Bible, you, you start to understand something. Everything that is not of God is chaos because God came to establish order. And water is chaos. It's unpredictable. You don't know what it's going to do. So 
When the Holy Spirit hovers over the chaos, he starts to install order into the entire planet. Land is order. Animals are order. Human beings and how they look over the entire planet and take care of the animals. This is all order and this is of God. But chaos, that was not of God. He is not shown. Um, he is not revealed as, as making uh, a place that is meant to just be chaotic and, and unpredictable. So chaos is is something else. And that's why Paul gets hung up on order. So the creation story as it stands, the world is an entirely giant ball of swirling chaotic water. And then God comes along and he starts to establish order. Why does all this matter to, to monsters? Well, we're going to see that uh, our first monster, Leviathan, is a sea monster lives in the oceans and the waters and the sea, and it uh, definitely um, is seen just kind of wreaking chaos upon upon uh, humanity. Um, so as we get into that, we need to start thinking of these monsters as what many um, scholars identify as chaos, uh, chaos creatures. So again, God is order. And these monsters are chaos. They're the opposite of it. They're trying to bring creation almost into anti-creation, trying to destroy the good work that, that God has done. So uh, let's now dive a little deeper into Leviathan specifically. Like I said, there's a few passages that get into Leviathan. Um, we're just going to focus on, well, actually, we'll, we'll see how many we, we get through. Our, our big focus is going to be in Job because that's the most that Leviathan is uh, explained. But let's start with Psalm 104, because our first question again is, what is Leviathan? You know, Jamin, you say he's a sea monster, but couldn't he just be something else? Um, well, let's get into that. Let's see if we can figure it out, figure out what, uh, what Leviathan is. So our most nonchalant reference to Leviathan is Psalm 104, which is pretty, our reference here is pretty brief. Uh, just Psalm 104, 24 to 26. It says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Now, uh, nothing sounds very uh, sea monstery right here because uh, we uh, just got a reference to Leviathan as playing uh, with ships in the water. Of course, if we were trying to think of like uh, what's a what's a real life animal that might be this, something that might come to your mind and has come to scholars' minds might be either like dolphin or whales, right? Because these aren't like uh, tiny fish. Um, they're they're bigger, and you can you can kind of paint a picture in your mind of uh, dolphins leaping out of the water and just thinking, ah, Leviathan, mm, a larger fish-sized creature that that plays among the ships. Uh, but if you wanted to be a, a little more tense, you'd think whales, right? Ah, oh, whales, these giant creatures that come out of the sea and, and play with the ships. And you might even be able to imagine a whale kind of like bumping into a ship or them being afraid that the whale's going to bump into them or could take them down. Uh, whatever the case might be, suddenly um, this this is some of the ways that some scholars who want to say that this is just a creature 
Uh, it's just a whale. It's just a dolphin. It's just a larger kind of fish that gives off a playful tone. Of course, if we weren't going to go that way, then we might think more like Leviathan, a, a sea monster. Like think a kraken coming out of the sea and he's playing with the ships, right? He's not, uh, he's not careful. It's the ship's a toy to him. He's, he's treating the people like they don't matter and he can squash them. It's all just fun, right? So that's another way that you might take it. So on one side, you've got this kind of like mythical creature intensity. And on the other side, you kind of have like a nonchalant, not big deal whale or dolphin. So uh, which way do we go? Well, again, we got to look a little deeper into what the other passages say. And again, our, our, our biggest passage is Job 41. So let's take a minute, think over what we've learned about chaos and order uh, and uh, creation and anti-creation. And then I'm going to read to you all of Job 41, which is a little long, but here's what I'm going to want you to do when we come back. I want you to think, as you listen to the description, if this was a real-life animal, what animal would it be? Hope you're ready to think over this passage. Again, I'm going to read to you Job 41. I want you to think, if this was a real-life animal, what animal would it be? So here we go. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope on his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spheres? spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near with him with a brittle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and they cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid at the crashing 
They are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotted wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes a deep boil like a pot. He makes a sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. All right, so if you were to think, again, if you were to think, is this just a creature that they saw back then? Uh, some people would propose dinosaurs, though almost all scholars today are like, no, that's that, that's not what's going on here. Uh, others would think a real being that we've seen today. And in this case, scholars would say, and let's see if this is right, up your alley, a crocodile. A crocodile. And, you know, there are certain things that we could see overlapping here. You know, strong uh, strong skin and uh, you've got uh, jaw, large jaw. You wouldn't give your daughter a crocodile. <laughs> you know, you know, things like that. Um but I don't know about you, but when I read this, the thing that's going through my mind is something more like a dragon, like a sea serpent or a kraken or, or something like that. Like this thing is is described in ways that sound very dragon-esque, right? He makes a deep boil like a pot, as though like there's fire inside of him. He's He's got... Uh, um, he's got... Uh, uh, he's, he's described as like a creature that is very fearsome to behold, which, of course, a crocodile is. Um, but, you know, in, in this particular poem, like, he's so fearsome. Like, you come in contact with him, you are going to die. You're not going to make it. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know enough about alligators. I've actually... <laughs> I, I had a dream last night that I jumped on a crocodile's face and then ran to a playground. I was like, <laughs> stopped on your face and now you can't catch me. But then the crocodile... <laughs> started climbing up the playground and chasing me around and it was terrifying i woke up and i couldn't go back to sleep uh what does that have to do with anything though yeah what are we talking about oh yeah crocodiles right so when i was in florida came across the crocodile's cousin the alligator and uh we were just given this long speech about how alligators are fairly docile creatures well that's maybe i'm putting that too strongly just like they may not snap and kill you at any given moment. Of course, they can and they will. Uh, but we walked away. My family walked away from that crocodile farm so secure that when we came across uh, this alligator that was on our path on the way, <laughs> we stepped over it like morons and continued walking. Now, we should have died. You know, that crocodile or that alligator should have eaten us for sure. I don't know why he didn't. He looked very lazy. Um, but four of us just walked over his bath back because he was in the middle of this path on the forest and we kept walking after that. So when this poem's like, you come across Leviathan, you will not live. All I'm saying is like, if it was a crocodile, then, well, I've come across the crocodile's cousin and I lived, you know, I, I survived it. Though I have heard that in other parts of the world, there are crocodiles that are like way more intense and they've taken out tons of people. And so 
you know, again, you come back to this conversation. Are we talking about like a mythical dragon, sea serpent kind of creature? Or are we talking about a crocodile? There's just things in this particular passage that, I don't know, they don't, they don't, I just feel like, as an artist who likes to write lyrics, this is a poem right here. And when you're writing a poem, you, uh, you know, you have a certain amount of artistic license to say what you need to say. But if this is a crocodile, it just seems to kind of go a little intensely for me. Like, his sneezings flash forth light. I'm not thinking of a crocodile when I hear something like that. I'm thinking of a fire-breathing dragon, right? Um, but some scholars would say, well, actually, it's been noted that when when crocodiles sneeze, there's uh, there's a like a, a bright flash of their snot flies through the air. It's it, their sneeze is is like light. I'm like ah, artistically, as someone who likes to write um, lyrics and poems, I don't know. I think you're you're stretching it a little bit there. Uh, it feels kind of like we're trying to turn a kraken into a shark, you know, try to turn a giant sea monster into a crocodile. Um, but some would go that route and uh, there are some pieces here and there that make sense. But in the end, I still would say that this thing is not, is not a crocodile. There's something more going on here. And one of the, the particular phrases that really catches me in the poem we just read is the fact that when this, it, it said, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid at the crashing, they are beside themselves. We read that in Job 41, 25. The mighty are afraid of this. Now, that's the translation that we have in the ESV that I read to you, and that's typically the translation that uh, most uh, different uh, Bible passages are going to, um, Bible translations are going to go with. But uh, William Rayburn explains that there are other ways to interpret this word here. for example, he says uh, the use of gods instead of mighty, the use of gods within the context of the increasing awesomeness of this creature is fully natural. Therefore, the Hebrew may be interpreted to mean gods. The New Jerusalem version has divine beings. We may translate the first line as when Leviathan rises up, even the gods, little g gods, are frightened. Now, we've talked about this on the podcast before. There is only one God, only one God, but the Bible does talk about the only God that there is, how he created other spiritual beings to reign with authority over different nations. We don't have time to get into that whole thing here, um, but the Bible does portray him giving other spiritual beings authority to rule over nations on his behalf. Those beings become corrupt, and so they don't do what God called them to do. Um, but those beings, more or less, like the the people of, of the Bible understood that those beings were, they called them little g gods. So they're not God. There is only one God, and that one God created everything, including these other spiritual beings. Um, but at the same time, these little g gods were present. So if we were to take that word there and not translate it mighty, but instead we were to translate it as gods, you know, then we have the Bible saying like in Job 41, Leviathan shows up and the little g gods are afraid. (laughs) And when I think of a crocodile, I'm like, 
Okay, so you're a you're a spiritual being with power and authority, and you're afraid of a crocodile. Of all the things you'd be afraid of, that just doesn't register in my mind. But if you're a spiritual being and this giant sea monster dragon-esque type creature comes out of the water, well, yeah, now I understand why you're you're freaking out. Uh, that that paints a, a more realistic image in our mind with the kind of uh, language that uh, the Bible is is using right here. So uh, that's that's one thing that makes us think again of a mythical creature, and we have to ask again. Then what is it? Is it mythical, or is it real? I'm going to aim for mythical, or I might even go so far as to say like a supernatural being of sorts makes sense for Leviathan. Mythical or supernatural being? We'll talk about that next. Okay, so I've already given a few reasons, and we could go into more, but I've given a few reasons as to why I would think Leviathan to be either a supernatural or just mythical kind of creature, um, based on some of the wording that we've looked at in the Bible. Uh, But now I'm going to give you kind of a uh, cultural look to try to prove my point. This is where things get a little more dense, a little more difficult to to follow. So I'll do my best here. Um, but let me start with this. Uh, some scholars believe that uh, Job wasn't necessarily an Israelite. Uh, now, the book of Job, if you were to read it, you're going to notice a few things here and there that just don't sound very Israelitish. For example, um, well, Job talks about stars and stuff. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but uh, in the Bible, there's not much uh, said when it comes to like names of celestial objects. Not very often, anyways. Uh, like even in Genesis 1:16, you have the greater light and the lesser light, the sun and the moon. Why don't they use the actual names? Well, it's because the sun and the moon, by their names, could be considered. Uh, um, in ancient times, they would be seen as like gods to other nations. So in order to say like there is only one God, when they're talking about the sun and the moon, they're like uh, the big light and the little light, right? They don't want to be too detailed and use language where people will be like, then God made the God, the sun God, and then the moon God. That's not what they're trying to communicate. So they uh, say greater light and lesser light. Um, but here's what uh, Michael Pedham uh, Michael Allen Pedham says in his book, The Star of Bethlehem, uh, he talks about how Job maybe wasn't an Israelite. This is how he says it. The distinction between Job and Israelites has great importance. Those who transmitted the Bible see that no righteous Israelite ever pronounced the names of the stars except in praise of the power and greatness of God or in ridicule of the king of Babylon or in ridicule of the worship of star gods. But Job, on the other hand, who is not an Israelite, can dispute with God at length, and God answers him, and both make reference to several explicitly named heavenly bodies. This way of speaking was appropriate to a righteous man who is not an Israelite. Uh, 
His astronomical knowledge is respected, and God enters into the dispute also using it. All right, so if we were to go into Job 38, 31, you would see that, like, uh, um, you see uh, Job talk about different constellations like Orion and things like that. That is unusual in the Bible that he would get into that language as a good Israelite. But if he was a God believer and a God fearer and worshiping the one true God and the one God alone, even though he was outside of Israel to some extent, then you would expect that some different things of his culture come into the conversation, right? So if he's not a good Israelite and he's not thinking I should shy away from names of constellations, then he would be thinking from his culture, oh God, you made the constellation Orion, you know, and God would be like, yes, I made the constellation Orion. It might be kind of like a weird thing for uh, an Israelite to say, but for him, as someone who's following God but is not of the Israelite clan and has the Israelite traditions in mind, it would make sense that he would use such language like that. Now, why does that matter? What does that mean? Why, why should that make any difference? Well, here's the thing. If you look into other cultures of ancient times, you come across Leviathan. And so it would make sense. If Job was not a Israelite, and he's from a culture that has this creature known as Leviathan in his own tradition, it would make sense that Job is talking from his own tradition. Ah, God, I think of Leviathan and how big he is. And God's like, yeah. And God doesn't even maybe care whether Leviathan is real or not. God just works with his culture. Yeah, Leviathan, that's a huge being. Guess what? I'm bigger than Leviathan. I can take, I can, I can, Slay him with the sword. He's, he's just a little plaything to me. So that's the way that uh, God starts talking about Leviathan. So something from Job's culture is now brought before God, subjected to God, and God speaks in a way that Job would understand his greatness over, over this creature that is not necessarily an Israelite creature, but is actually a creature that comes from another culture. And so if we were to go to uh, a book known as The Baal Cycle, this ancient literature, which, yes, is about the false god Baal, which was one that kept trying to seduce Israel into worshiping him instead of worshiping the one true God. Um, in The Baal Cycle, in this literature, you see this, this little g-god known as Baal, who is the little g-god of storms and agriculture. Uh, and... Uh, he comes along and he begins to rise in power among all the other little g-gods in this story. To do this, he has to fight uh, Yam, which is the seven-headed god of the sea. So here you have a sea creature with seven heads, right? And Baal has to go and destroy him. And after he does that, he dismembers Yam and his uh, all of Yam's body parts and then he, he builds a house, and it the whole story climaxes with Baal enthroned in his house as the one who's like greater than all the other little g-gods. So this is like an ancient story. This is not Hebrew. This is not Israelite religion. This is some other culture. Um, but what's really interesting here is at one point, Yom, this seven-headed water creature, is at one point referred to by another name, Lighten. 
and then Ugarit, which is a, a close relative to the Hebrew language. And Ugarit, this word is the equivalent of Leviathan. So suddenly we're starting to draw lines here. Okay, so if I were to look into another religion, what I would see is a story of Baal battling a seven-headed sea monster god, and then uh, um, that seven-headed sea monster god can also be known as uh, uh, Lighten, which in Hebrew is Leviathan. Now we're coming full circle back to the story of Job. And here, we suddenly start to realize some of the reason why this story is even in Job, because here we start to see God is saying, look, in the same way that you think like, oh, Baal destroyed uh, Lighten, Baal destroyed Leviathan, let me tell you just how powerful I am. Would you put, would you put Leviathan on, on a leash for your little girls? Well, I would, because he's a pet, because he's tiny, because he's insignificant. He doesn't matter. I am not afraid of him at all, and I will slay him. I will get rid of him completely. So here you have God, like, basically insulting uh, the little G-gods, insulting the other religions, the other cultures, and, and all these other stories that have been told about their spiritual beings. God's like, no. I'm the one true God. I'm the one with all the power. I'm the, I'm not even afraid. I don't even have to battle this thing. I have it on a leash. It's it's my little plaything. So suddenly you see this happening. And let me read a quote from Michael Heiser here. It basically says what I just said, but it'll say a little with a little more fluidity. Uh, Dr. Heiser says, Old Testament writers use sources or known content to their audience. One of the ways this happens is with the use of ancient Near Eastern myths. Now, people like the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, so on and so forth, had mythical epics that they would write to explain to their audience, their own culture, how things came to be. They deal with creation. They deal with cosmology. How reality that they experience is structured. How it came into existence. Who are the gods and what's their relationship to man and all these sorts of things. Often the biblical writers will either draw material from that material, or they will sort of mimic it as they go for a specific polemic purpose. What I mean by that is, for instance, there are psalms, there are places, again, in the books of Kings, where the biblical writer will take little snippets of the Baal cycle, just to interject, that's, again, the book we just read. They'll take little snippets of, of the Baal cycle, the Baal epic, and bring it into the biblical material and do things to it that are dismissive of Baal and elevate Yahweh above Baal. The audience would know exactly what the writer is doing. You're using that to make a theological point about Yahweh and to dismiss Baal. So again, this is me talking now, the one true God will go ahead and make reference to things of other people's culture, but it's to show who he really is. All right, Job, you believe in Leviathan? Well, let me tell you how great I am in comparison to Leviathan. God will do this kind of thing. And the Bible does this kind of thing, where, again, it just kind of brings in these old um, culture, brings in cultures around, and then um, God is seen as the victor instead of Baal or some other god. So uh, the Bible does that from, from time to time. Uh, now, all this being said, we've now seen ties between... Leviathan and Lighten slash Yom. Uh, I want to show you where the Bible makes this connection 
very, very clear uh, in our next portion here. So if you want a real specific reference to Leviathan and uh, Lighten slash Yom, here it is. When we get into Isaiah 27, we find in the first verse there a reference to Leviathan. And the wording here is very important. It says, In that day the Lord with his hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So this is a reference to like end time stuff. When God comes and he puts all things right, he will do away with chaos. He will do away with the the creatures, the chaos creatures, the ones that are trying to bring chaos upon order, the ones who are trying to bring anti-creation upon creation. Uh, But When we look at this passage, we see more than that. We see a specific reference to to Canaanite literature. Check this out. So you just heard uh, that Leviathan was a fleeing serpent and a twisting serpent, a dragon in the sea, right? Um, You've also heard that Leviathan is this seven-headed water creature god, (laughs) right? In Canaanite literature, it says this, when you killed Lighten, the fleeing serpent, annihilated the twisty serpent, the potentate with seven heads, the heavens grew hot, they withered. So when you look at this, like you see some very clear lines here Isaiah is drawing. Isaiah is saying, hey, y'all know Leviathan, which the other culture calls a fleeing serpent, a twisting serpent. Hey, y'all know Leviathan, that being with seven heads. Well, here you have, right here, you 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 have Isaiah saying like, yeah, God's going to slay him. <laughs> He's going to slay him. And now we know, like, very certainly, Lighten from this other culture, like, this is this mythical being, this maybe even supernatural being, if you would want to go that far. One way or another, d- despite what you want to um, view this creature as, it starts becoming very clear to me after all this research, like, this is not a crocodile. Or at least God isn't intending for anyone to think of a crocodile. He's intending for Leviathan to be referenced as Job would expect Leviathan to be referenced. It's that water sea monster spiritual being, and God will slay him and all the chaos that comes comes with him. And so here, uh, we're starting to see the importance of, of just looking through all of this research to understand what is this Godzilla-like creature, this kaiju. Well, as it ends up, Leviathan is another culture, uh, a story that belongs somewhere else, and now the pieces are coming together. 
All right, now we're not done yet. There's two other creatures I want to hit on, though I know we've already talked for a little bit. Um, these ones will be a bit shorter, and we didn't even get into everything that we could have said about Leviathan, uh, but uh, we're not going to get into everything we could say about both uh, Rahab and Behemoth. But we're going to find some interesting traces between all of these stories, seemingly leading us to the possibility of God doing away with them in Revelation. So stick with us. Uh, because as it ends up, uh, some of the pictures painted of giant monsters <laughs> roaming the earth like in, in uh, these kaiju movies, well, it also has a little bit of a biblical flair. And actually, you see that. If you saw the most recent Godzilla movie, you saw them try to draw those parallels, right? At one point, there's like a cross over a city. And in the background, you just see uh, this this creature which is like a dragon with three, I think it was three heads, right? It's it's very much looking like a, a revelation-type beast destroying the earth and Godzilla walking after it. Looks like this beast as well. So, of course, they put a cross there to kind of like think of like, it's revelation, it's the end times, the beasts have come and they're duking it out. Um, so, to some extent, that's kind of a way that... Revelation pictures um, the end times with all these beasts just kind of like showing up, though they're not duking it out with each other. They're destroying humanity. Um, but we're going to get to that because you actually see the Bible, I think, follow the progression of these ancient sea creatures and these myths throughout the Bible, and they bring it kind of full force in a very important way when we get to Revelation. So stick with us. Right now, let's jump into Rahab. Okay, so we've tied Leviathan to Lighten slash Yam of Ugaritic and Canaanite literature. You might be wondering about Rahab. Rahab basically, well, to be honest, there's so many overlapping themes between Rahab and Leviathan that in some ways, a lot of scholars just kind of view them as like the same thing. Uh, oh, it's just another water sea monster. Maybe they just had two different words for the same thing. Ah, just in the same way that Baal literature may be like, it's Lighten, it's Yam, same same creature. Maybe Hebrew literature is like, it's Leviathan, it's Rahab. Um, because, again, there's a lot of overlapping themes. And to some extent, that's completely fine because they are chaos creatures. So in the end, they are an overlapping theme, right? They are bringing chaos upon the earth. They live in the chaos, the disordered waters, uh, not on the ordered land that God has brought together. And they bring disorder with them. So we've already kind of traced those themes. So to some extent, we're just like, uh, does Rahab have to have a background, or is it just another word for Leviathan? Well, uh, scholars, of course, are propelled to wonder, so they start looking around. Is there any connection between Rahab and and any other literature out there where it might be the same thing just as god will crush leviathan of another culture so god will crush rahab of another culture 
it's a little harder to follow on this one because we, we really don't find any specific overlapping names between Rahab and something else in another culture, at least at this time. But there is one Mesopotamian creation myth known as Anuma Elish. And in this story, there's two restful beings known as Apsu and Tiamat. And these two are seen as the primordial waters of the earth. So Apsu and Tiamat are kind of like these water gods, if you will. They represent the water. Uh, and then, um, and then uh, these, these two water beings give birth to the little G gods of, of their world. Now, as it ends up, these little G gods end up being quite loud and uh, they make life quite uneasy for these water gods. Now they can't sleep anymore. It's always too loud up there. Uh, so this eventually leads uh, Apsu and Tiamat, these water gods, to decide that they're going to kill their, their godly children. When these gods find out about this, one of them named, uh, named Ie, he responds to the threat by killing Apsu, which is then uh, causes Tiamat to rise an army of horrid creatures against all the gods. And then uh, this other god named Marduk, who's the storm god, he comes to fight Tiamat and her army. And with a strong wind, a net, and a bow and arrow, Marduk kills Tiamat and then uh, uses her corpse to create part of the world. <laughs> you follow that? Right, It's a weird creation myth, but this is another culture. Another culture says the water gods gave birth to the gods. The gods were too loud, so the water gods decided to kill their children. But then the children heard about their plan, and they tried to kill them. Uh, but what's most important to this story is in the end, when Marduk kills Tiamat, he uses her body to create part of the world. Now, this is called cosmogony. It's another scholar, scholarly term in biblical studies. Cosmogony is, uh, um, sorry, in ancient studies. Cosmogony is when a uh, battle, a cosmic battle of sorts, ends with the creation of the world. And that's what happens here. Marduk uses the body of the water god to create the world. Now, we see the possibility, a slight possibility, that there could be some overlap with Rahab being cosmogony as well. So here's how we trace those lines, okay? So uh, Tiamat, her body was split like a fish to be dried into two halves, and one of those halves became the sky, uh, and the uh, spit became clouds, and uh, a mountain <laughs> kind of became her head, and then an outlet from her eyes became the waters of the Euphrates and Tigris. So you see how like they pictured the death of this giant god becoming the creation of the world. Of course, we know that only God created the world. So why would the Hebrews talk about cosmogony at all? Well, we know that they saw the world having like a, a snow globe kind of ceiling, just like Tiamat's body was turned into the sky in a, a similar kind of way. Um, Here's where we see the overlapping themes. If we were to go to Job 26, 11 through 13, here's what he says about Rahab. He says, He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. 
He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble, which is, I believe, like a mountain is how they would see pillars of heavens. They hold up the sky and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. I know it's probably getting hard to follow me at this point, but there's a lot of words there that are very interesting to pay attention to. Because Ray, uh, sorry, uh, Job just talked about Rahab, first off, as a fleeing serpent which was language used to describe Leviathan. So you see, again, the overlap between Leviathan and Rahab as the possibility that could be the same creature. But in the same voice of talking about how God shattered Rahab, Job is also talking about how God created the whole world, (laughs) the skies, the heavens, and all this, which is the possibility that you see cosmogony overlap right there, right? In the same way that uh, Tiamat's body was shattered to create the world, now it suddenly pictures God as shattering Rahab to create the world. Even though we know that that's not the way God did it, you see the possibility of God using Job's culture. You know Rahab who was split open to create the world? Yeah, that was me. I did it. So again, you see God kind of relating to Job's thinking and the way that maybe he processes things. Um, and that's just one possibility as to who Rahab is. Now, we could go into more, but uh, I, I guess what I want to wrap up on with Rahab is there is one other way to look at her. You could also see her as Egypt. And the Bible has a Uh, Kind of this sense in a few spots where Rahab has become a symbol of Egypt. Now, I don't know if this is like Egypt was worshiping Rahab as their god or just, uh, um, just this idea that in the same way that Rahab is a chaos creature, so Egypt was a chaos creature because they afflicted God's people. They afflicted Israel. There's some possibility of some overlapping themes right there. Uh, But either way, it becomes clear that uh, the Bible paints Rahab in the picture of looking like the mythical creature Leviathan, being a cosmogony kind of creature, but then also being a a symbol of of Egypt. So that catches us up to speed on that. Uh, We've now talked about two water creatures that are found in the Bible, two water kaiju, dragons, Do we have anything else? Yes, Behemoth. And uh, this one is not uh, so much in the water. There's some water overlap. But this one seems to be a bit more earthly, which is where we're headed now. Okay, so we already went through Job's poem about Leviathan. One thing we didn't say is this. Uh, Job's poem about Leviathan is like the epic ending to to all of Job. So God starts a bit smaller, like, hey, you know the ostriches? 
I take care of the ostriches. And then he keeps like moving up. Hey, you know the lions? I take care of the lions. And then finally we get to like uh, the very end of Job where it's like, you know Leviathan? She's got nothing against me. I, I can slay her. She's she's just a pet on my leash. So you see God like escalating. And that's why Leviathan, that poem was so long. It's because that poem is like the like ultimate thing on the earth that Job can think of. God's still saying like, I've got power over that. One chapter before Leviathan, we get to, uh, we had a beast named Behemoth. So if we were to back up, If we're thinking of escalating themes here, God keeps showing his power more and more, then if we were to come one step under Leviathan, we would find ourselves at another mythical creature called Behemoth. And this is Job 40, 15 through 24, a little shorter. I'll read it all for you. So let's do what we did earlier. Listen to the words about Behemoth. Picture if, if this was a animal that's still alive today, what do you think scholars would say that this animal is? So here, I'll read it to you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes, or pierce his nose with a snare? So right there, you have God like implying like, look, can anyone take care of behemoth? Such a big beast. You know what? No, they can't, but I can. So what is he talking about? If that was a real life animal, what would you think? Uh, since it kind of sounds like it could be like a water cow, <laughs> scholars are, of course, headed for the hippopotamus as their opinion. So if you thought that, then you're right in line with what... Uh, scholars would predict that this creature was. Um, But again, I see a lot of problems with coming to this conclusion. Uh, I do see overlap. Sure, it feeds on grass. Um, It's got muscles. uh, But (laughs) there's also some stuff in here that just, uh, you know, strikes me as almost hilarious when we think of, of a hippo. Again, Artistic license allows you to say things in a way that's like, you know, over embellishing features, but you can over, over, and you can only over embellish so much before someone's like, what, why? So, okay. Job just said that, uh, behemoth has a, a tail stiff, like a cedar, (laughs) uh, that just doesn't line up. Like, even if that was over embellishment like it, it just doesn't line up with a hippo a hippo has a tiny little tail you know like it's not a distinguishing mark of its body and some are like well its tail gets stiff okay when it's scared and it's running away is that the picture that was just painted for us here no not really so <laughs> needless to say 
Uh, a cedar, like a tail stiff like cedar. A cedar is like one of the bigger trees that the Bible talks about, like 85 feet, you know? So again, we're thinking like uh, large. We're thinking huge trees, uh, glorious trees, if you will. And yet here we are like, ah, oh, the grand cedar-like tail of the hippo. It just, it doesn't line up. So at some point, like either God was being like, a comedian right here, or he's talking about something other than a hippo. So that's just like one focus right there. We could get into more, but again, we've been going a little long. Uh, so let's, let's, uh, head towards the end here so we can get to the end of the Bible with revelation in the same way that we might liken, um, Leviathan to lightning slash Yom in the same way that we might liken Rahab to Tiama or a cosmogony kind of creature. What can we do with this with this behemoth? What do we, what do we do with it? Does it belong in, in any other place? Uh, again, we don't have direct connections. We can only look at what connections we do see. And and one thing that's been proposed that to me makes some sense is the fact that uh, Leviathan in uh, literature about Leviathan, there was another creature in uh, that that literature known as Arshu. Now, Arshu is a calf of a, a god in Ugaritic literature. Uh, but what's interesting about Arshu is this calf gets paired with Lighten, gets paired with uh, Yom, the seven-headed sea dragon. And since in Job, we just uh, see in Job 40 this explanation of Behemoth, this great creature, but not as great as Leviathan. And then we go one chapter into Job 41, and suddenly we're on Leviathan. Since Job is pairing a, a calf-like marsh kind of creature with uh, uh, Leviathan, this sea serpent, but they're both these ginormous kind of kaiju beings, these large Godzilla-like beings, uh, well... Maybe that's likening it to Arshu. So in Job's literature, you got a land slash marsh slash calf-like creature that you are supposed to compare with Leviathan. In Canaanite literature, you have Arshu, who is paired with Lighten. Now, if this is uh, what's going on here, then we're starting to track down how they connect together. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little hard to fully tell, just like it was with Rahab. There aren't specific direct connections. You just have to do your best to kind of look for the overlapping themes. Now, we're moving towards the end here. Um, during the time of Jesus, or closer to the time of Jesus, more was written about Lighten and Behemoth. Uh, and during this time, they became creatures that people were thinking about and adding a few more details to. So these details aren't biblical, but these details are the things that were going through uh, the minds of the Jews of Jesus' time. Uh, so let's go ahead and fast forward a little bit. Okay, so in a non-biblical Jewish book closer to Jesus' time, 
You have this book called Second Esdras, which notes that God kept in existence two living creatures when he was making the world. And uh, these two living creatures are Leviathan and Behemoth. And uh, Behemoth is given the land to play in, but Leviathan is given the water to play in. So this would have further enforced to the the people of Jesus' time that we're talking about a a giant land creature and a giant water creature. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, what we find is allusions all over the place to the Bible. So John, who wrote Revelation, clearly knew his Bible like crazy. This guy is constantly quoting Bible passages. He won't even like say it straight. He'll just say one word. And in that one word, you'll know that he was referring to to something from a passage from all different kinds of books throughout the Bible. I'm actually just finishing writing a allegorical book right now. And uh, uh, I I feel like I understand John a little bit better right now, because I'll make one reference about how Jesus didn't want to drink something. And in that reference, sorry, my Jesus-like character didn't want to drink something. And when I say that, like, I know exactly what passage I'm referencing, and I'm hoping that the people who read my book will understand what I'm doing as well, or that it will uh, kind of put it in a new light for them to understand. So Revelation is similar. Revelation is grabbing passages from all over the place, restating them, and not saying straight that, like, uh, as you all know, I'm quoting Isaiah right now. No, instead, Revelation is like talking about things and hoping that his audience is going to be like, wow, I, he's quoting left and right. We know it just from hearing these words. And that's what I believe we see when we get to the beasts of Revelation. So you have three beasts in Revelation, which uh, some scholars, and I think this is a great way to look at it, uh, would say that these three beasts are like uh, an unholy trinity, if you will. So if there's only one God, but that one God is found as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Revelation, you have uh, the dragon, which is Satan, and then the first beast and the second beast. And what's very interesting is the first beast you find rising out of the water. The second beast you find rising out of the earth. And the Satan, uh, who's a dragon, this dragon has seven heads. So when you stop and and you start paying attention to what uh, John is saying in Revelation, you're like, holy cow, he's just painting pictures from all over the place. Because yeah, these beings do represent other things. Like sure, they're representative of of Babylon, of the city, of uh, all kinds of things. But a lot of people get so caught up in like what they're representative of that they forget to stand back and look at the picture. And when you do that, you're like, hey, look, it's a dragon, Satan, it's 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 a water creature, Leviathan, and it's a land creature, uh, Behemoth. And actually, that's important to note, too. Uh, the dragon has seven heads, but the first beast that comes out of the sea also has seven heads. So if you've read your Bible, you would be thinking, hey, it's Leviathan, Right. But wait, who's Leviathan in league with in this unholy trinity? Oh, Leviathan is Satan. In fact, it looks a lot like Satan. It's a beast coming out of the water with seven heads. It's like a mirror image of Satan. And and Behemoth, this land animal coming out, land creature beast coming out of the, the land. 
he's he's in league with these same two and they're all worshiping the dragon and it's just like wow how how did i miss this before <laughs> people get so caught up in the book of revelation of trying to interpret everything that again you just forget to stand back and be like hey it's all the chaos it's all the chaos creatures that that not only um the jews were thinking about in their time but are recorded throughout the Bible. So why does John bring them up here? Well, in light of everything that we've just learned, we're thinking of chaos creatures as anti-order, as anti-God, as anti-creation. And now not only do we have them in the water where chaos was always known to dwell and demons were thought to live and things were unpredictable, but now we also have behemoth on the land. Even the land is falling into unorder, to disorder, to anti-creation. Everything's been being torn apart and the world is just falling apart and humans are, are being destroyed and and the whole picture that Revelation is painting is, hey, look, Satan and all of his forces of evil have risen up to the full capacity, and they're just destroying everything. But it doesn't end there, because as you keep going forward in Revelation, suddenly you see God step in and wipe out all evil, get rid of all sin, and all that's left are his people who now live with him as he plants the kingdom of heaven on the earth and begins to renew all things. Uh, Humans are given new resurrected bodies to live in. Uh, All of creation is redone. In fact, the Bible revelation goes so far as to say that the sea is no more. And is that actually what's going to happen in the end? I don't know. But at least we know what that means. When when the Bible, when John in Revelation said that the sea would one day be no more, what he was saying is like all of the chaos that represents, all the unpredictability, everything that comes with that element before God started to order the world, everything that represents chaos, anti-creation, disorder, That will be done away with completely. And all that will be left is God's order. Things will be put in place. And so that brings us full circle. Maybe originally we thought like, why why are we even getting into this? (laughs) Why do these mythical beasts even matter? I know when I wrote this book, uh, Kaiju of Biblical Proportions, which will take you a little deeper if you want. It's a fairly short book. There's a lot of pictures. It's a very strange artistic academic study hybrid I don't know how I ended up doing that. Um, But if you want to go deeper, you can read that. But when I started that project, like I said earlier, I didn't know anything about these creatures. I knew a little bit, but not much. And as I researched it, I was like, when I finished it, I was like, wow, you know, this actually makes a difference with how I think about creation, about the world, how I understand the Bible when I'm reading it, how I understand God and what order is and, and all these elements. So I found it beneficial to me in the end. And as our first 1208-bit podcast episode, maybe you found it beneficial as well. Uh, Maybe maybe I went way too deep and way too long for it to be beneficial to you. But it's a nerdy topic. There are all these movies today about giant monsters destroying the world. That's not new. The Bible had pictures and portraits of biblical monsters destroying the world as well. And so I hope uh, kind of seeing these overlapping themes has given you something uh, to enjoy to just kind of work off of. 
But that wraps us up with uh, the first episode of the 1208 podcast. Uh, sorry, 1208-bit section of the 1208 podcast. So we'll let you go for now, and uh, we will catch you next time. Okay, Scott.